Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being here for Political Rewind. We're uh, really glad to have you with us. We're back. It's Wednesday. Uh, if you listen to the show in real time, we're uh, back. We did our show uh, from Augusta. We, we recorded it in front of a live audience Monday night, aired the show yesterday. I hope you all got a chance to hear what the people in the Augusta audience uh, applauded about and not for in terms of gun control and, and other things, impeachment of uh, the president. Um but we're back live in the studio here in Atlanta and happy to be here. Uh, we're joined today, as we are on most Wednesdays, by Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, increasingly spending his time looking at presidential politics. But you're not quite there to do it full-time yet. You've still got the state on your yeah. Uh, plate. Yeah, I don't think it'll ever be full full-time, but it'll be about probably... It'll end up 80%. Yeah, all right. Uh, you have a great story that um, you wrote for the paper this morning. You're just back, we should point out, from Las Vegas. You were on a red eye overnight. How many hours of sleep have you had, Greg? Not a one. Oh, great. This is going <laughs> to... We're going to have fun with Blue Steam on this show. Oh, definitely. If you're watching us on Facebook Live, which I hope you'll do, just go to GPB News on Facebook. Sitting across from Greg is... Uh, Professor Amy Steigerwald, she's a Georgia State political science professor, but that just begins to summarize who you are. Your constitutional law is in your ballywick. Women in politics is a part of who you are. What am I missing, Amy? Probably judicial confirmations. Judicial I do a lot on that. Oh, that's right. Judicial well, and confirmations. Atlanta United Soccer. And, and, and Atlanta United knows, Soccer. And yes. that's one of the reasons we like having you on the show is oh, you, you know Atlanta United inside and out. I, we we try and we will we will be at the cup game tonight. So we're excited Good for you. All right, uh, Jeremiah Only is back with us. He's a political consultant. Works with uh, Theron Johnson at Paramount Consulting. Jeremiah, have you guys picked up any candidates uh, at, at this point? You still aren't. In, in the hunt, or you're in the hunt, but you don't have anybody yet, do you? That's right. I was actually way ahead of you for once. I was going to start with that. No presidential candidates on our slate yet. Um, but you might pick up a congressional candidate, or a state Senate candidate, candidate, a Senate candidate. You, you, know? you never know, but if we do, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Greg. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> also, also with us today, GPB Radio political reporter Stephen Fowler. Stephen, you went down to Macon yesterday. You made the drive to go to the Georgia Chamber of Commerce annual congressional luncheon. That was your first one, wasn't it? That's right. And I finished an audiobook on the way. <laughs> <laughs> Did you also start it? Uh, after listening to Political Rewind. Yeah, okay. Well, thank <laughs> you very done. much. All right, let's get going. Uh, Greg Bluestein, you did go to Las Vegas. Tell us why you decided you had to be in Las Vegas yesterday. What event was going on? Well, it was the IUPAT Labor Union's big annual convention, but one of the main... What, is, what are those letters? Um, <laughs> you're testing me on a, a day when I don't have much sleep. Um, it's an international uh, labor union. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> um, but uh, but Stacey Abrams was giving the uh, keynote speech there. And it was a, a moment in her uh, in her post-election, post uh, post November um, metamorphosis from a narrowly missed defeated candidate to someone who has staked out her 2020 plans. And she made some significant news. First off, being that she's not running for president. Not a huge shock there, but she hadn't said it publicly yet. Um, she is very open to being vice president. Um, she said and. But in the meantime, she's going to focus on a broad expansion of her voting rights group um, working in now, instead of just in working in Georgia, working in 20 states, mostly battlegrounds all over the nation. So this was a, uh, this was a major, I mean, how many people were, is this a big, big union oh, that yeah. she spoke in front It was of? at Caesars Palace. There was oh. um, hundreds, um, maybe more than a thousand people there and, and, and a very left uh, liberal union. Robert um, Jimison has had a full night's sleep. 
And he just texted that, that the uh, initials stand for International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. There you go. Thank so you. So you know. Thank you. It's uh, in my story. Let's, before, I, I know you interviewed Abrams, and I want everybody to get in on this conversation, and I'll ask you about some of the things she said to you. But in the meantime, she was also, she is really back she out is. on the circuit right mm-hmm. now. Uh, Vogue has a big profile of her. New Yorker does. The New Yorker has New a big Times. profile. The New York Times the other day. And she was on Rachel Maddow last night. Let's just listen to her answering Rachel Maddow's question about the presidential race. Part of my responsibility as a citizen and as someone who has the opportunity to stand for the highest office is to make certain that I'm the right person and it's the right time. But it's also to make sure that I'm doing the best that I can do to ensure that we have someone who beats Donald Trump and that we win back the Senate. And as I looked at the candidates, as I watched the debates, I think we have a robust crop of candidates who have thoughtful ideas and plans for how we move our country forward. And so for me, the decision was, how can I best be of service? And as I weighed the balance of me trying to mount a campaign, which I think I could do, or focusing on making sure that every American who's eligible to vote can vote in November of 2020, the choice for me was simple. And I decided to go the direction of launching Fair Fight 2020. All right, Greg, uh, she said similar things to you, but what else did she add to that in your conversation with her? Well, she talked a lot about what what the the contours of 2020, of what her initiative would be. Um, She said she was going to stay neutral in this Senate race, which is no surprise either. She had said that as well before. Um, And she talked about what her goals were to to be for for this Fair Fight 2020 initiative. And and basically what, what, what she doesn't want it. She does not want Fair Fight to be some umbrella group that opens up chapters in, in 20 battleground states. Instead, she wants it to be a resource that helps train Democrats in these states um, because, in her words, she thinks that the, the next Republican uh, voter suppression attack, uh, again, this is what she says, um, will be something that Democrats don't see coming, and they'll have to be flexible. And by the time a presidential nominee is, is, is selected, she wants that person to have a little runway through this group. So um, they're going to be very involved uh, over the next year and a half in, in, in voting rights and, and vo- voting protection. Focusing uh, on the Midwest and on the Southeast, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Uh, that she includes the Southeast in her uh, in, in her new organization. Yeah, and that includes three states, yeah. um, three conservative states that have gubernatorial elections this year. It's sort of, I guess, the test, you know, the pilot states um, with the full intention of, of by next year having this fully up and running. Amy, one of the things that's always interesting about Stacey Abrams to me is, and we heard it in that soundbite, there's a methodical approach that she always takes. Lawyerly. It's, yeah, it's very yeah. lawyerly. She really uh, puts things together in a logical, coherent way. Uh, and it's always interesting to hear that, whether you are a fan of hers or not. Admittedly, as an academic, I really rather like that methodical (laughs) approach. And I think it's kind of an important one where she's saying, you know, what is it that I can contribute? What are the ways that I can do it? I'm going to weigh this. I'm going to make this determination. And you are never worried. You know that she is not making a rash decision on anything. And so when she's determined this, that this is the best way that I can help and this is the best way to go forward, I think it's important. And I think that also shows in how she's approaching the Fair Fight Coalition, right, that it's this idea that we are going to, right, she's got good reasons of all the different states that they're choosing. There is a methodical plan of exactly how it's going to go. She already sort of is aware of what our other groups are out there doing similar things and so how they can make sure they're helping as opposed to just being redundant or something like that. and, you know, again, regardless of sort of your politics, it's it's an approach which is terribly successful. And I think you've saw that in the last election. Stephen, uh, it, 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 this uh, organization, which will expand to at least 20 states, uh, I get that she's not running, of course, for president in 2020. We still think that 2022 and a rematch with Brian Kemp could be on the horizon for her. It probably is. But she's also young enough that she can continue what she's had as a long-term goal to run for president of the United States down the road at some point. So my cynical take on the organization beyond the, the things that she thinks she can accomplish in a positive way is, you know, in some ways she's laying the ground for building a network for an eventual run for president. Well, you know, <clears throat> like like Amy said, everything that Stacey Abrams does is methodical and planned out. She could have said we're launching in all 50 states, but she didn't. She could have said 
I'm going to run for Senate or I'm actively courting VP, but she didn't because it's part of this plan. And the thing uh, the, the thing that she has maintained in all of this is her agency about her future. Some of the headlines that have run have said, you know, can Stacey Abrams save democracy? And she's not trying to, you know, copy and paste Stacey Abrams into 20 different states. She's trying to use a general roadmap that her organization created and almost won in Georgia and to use that to kind of give a little nitro boost to these other states that if it were to happen that she were to run for president, those states would have a say in if she's the nominee. Jeremiah, uh, what's your take on all this? Well, I want to third, I suppose, her methodological approach. That's something I really appreciate about her. When I think of a lot of the Democratic presidential candidates, I wish they had taken that approach and thought, how can I be most valuable? How can I be most useful in these efforts to retake the Senate, to shift control back to Democrats throughout the country? A lot of them have built up these incredible networks in their home states. They've got donors, they've got supporters, they've got voters. But outside of their one state and the other 49, there's really not as much there. And as they branch out, they've really, I think, lost a lot of opportunity to help the Democratic Party in a better way rather than jump into a race with 20 other people not saying, how can I actually be most effective to the party in the country rather than for myself? Yeah, and that conversation is really coming up more and more. It's it's bubbling to the surface right now in a much bigger way. John Hickenlooper, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're told who's, you know, announced he's running for president, was a very successful mayor of Denver, successful governor of Colorado, extremely well-liked in the state. A lot of people very disappointed he chose to run for president. And now there's talk that because his approval rating remains so high, he, in fact, may be headed back to run for that Senate seat in Colorado. And the Senate's going to be a much harder win in 2020 than even the presidential race. So we Mm -hmm. need candidates like that who have those networks to actually help us retake the Senate. Because if we have a Democratic president and a Republican Senate, nothing is going to happen. And look, there there are a lot of high-profile Democrats, especially in Washington, who are upset that Stacey Abrams isn't running for Senate, and that continues to to you know she's she, I'm sure she's still getting pressured here and there um, to run for to run for Senate, but she's never seen herself um, in that in that light. And what she always says is that politicians uh, should be fungible. Just because a job is there doesn't mean that you're the right fit for it. Just because you happen to be looking for an office at the right, at the same time. Um, but what's certainly going to happen over the next year is this will continue to elevate her profile and that when there are, because there inevitably will be voting rights issues, she'll be one of the Democratic Party's go-tos. Well, and I think it's also not a minor thing that once you are an elected politician, your primary goal becomes re-election, right? At this moment, her primary goal really is policy achievement. And in this point, right, it is registering people to vote. It's ensuring that people have ballot access, that there's not um, ways that are blocking that. And that can get lost, right, particularly when you get into um, the Congress. I mean, we, we know this from all the literature, that it shows that once you are elected, the thing that you have to care most about is continuing to keep your seat. Whereas right now, that actually is taken off the table, and she can instead focus on the actual policy goals in a way that a lot of times you're not able to. And I think what and I think what some of the criticism that people have had, you know, citing uh, lagging approval numbers of Stacey Abrams since her uh, election and things is that she's still doing work in Georgia. So if she wants to run for governor again in 2022, she's not leaving the state to go on, you know, these other tours. The work is still being done in Georgia. So that points back to her goals and aims towards fixing things in Georgia in addition to these other states. All right. Well, we're going to watch how that unfolds. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of mark she uh, has. I I cannot get over. I, I have to admit that as recently as uh, this weekend, I had said to several people, Stacey Abrams remains so popular, certainly among the national media, uh, and the Democratic presidential field <laughs> seems so uh, fungible, uh, to pick up on a word already used there. And I thought maybe Abrams really was was thinking, as she'd said a long time ago, in the fall, she could still jump into this thing. Apparently, she's told Greg Bluestein she's not. And, you know, when you tell Bluestein something, <laughs> that's it. Exactly. There's three words. I'm not running. But, yeah, she was seen as maybe a potential rescue candidate. Yeah, yeah. But the one thing she said was, uh, I don't see me, myself as a value add in the primary. So she certainly left mm-hmm. it open to be a vice presidential right. candidate. Uh, uh, Stephen, I said at the top of the show, you... Uh, Took the drive down to Macon. The Georgia Chamber of Commerce has an annual congressional luncheon down there. It draws an enormous crowd of people, uh, literally 1,000-plus people, uh, business leaders from all over the state, political leaders, elected officials. Um, 
it's hard to and and this is primarily now because our delegation is dominated by Republicans, an event where Republican incumbents have an opportunity to uh, really get a few words in with a community they want to reelect them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like potentially Senator David Perdue running for reelection. This was the, the speech that he gave uh, in addition to introducing the keynote of Elaine Chao, the transportation secretary, sounded very much like a introductory stump speech to why he should be the senator for the next several years coming. And and um, what's his give me some bullets points. Well, the economy is doing great, according to Senator Perdue. Uh, we need to protect the American way of doing uh, business, uh, the free market economy, as he likes to say. And uh, Georgia and the way Georgia does business should be a national example that he's trying to get through to his colleagues in the U.S. Senate and that different uh, federal departments should be taking notes on how Georgia does things which led to why Secretary Chow was the keynote speaker following him. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about that in a second, but before we leave David Perdue, I thought Jeremiah, in some ways, Perdue made more news uh, the day before the congressional luncheon. He gave an interview to the Macon Telegraph, I, I think it was the Macon Telegraph, in which he essentially uh, said, you know, yeah, there's climate change, but I'm not sure it's man-made. And, <laughs> and, and, and the reason that is significant in this election cycle, I think, and you all can correct me, is climate change really is going to be an issue that motivates a lot of younger voters in the 2020 cycle. Yeah, but I don't think he can have it both ways. If he just says, yeah, okay, maybe it's an issue, but I don't think it's man-made, then that indicates he's not actually going to do anything about it. There are not going to be any young voters who are going to be fooled into voting for him instead of, you know, whoever the Democratic nominee is, because he said, maybe I'm kind of there. It's not a let's wait and see for the next 10 years. It's we need to act now. I mean, if I think there was this week, there was a new article on the melting of Arctic ice caps, and it's hitting record-breaking levels for the last century or so. So there is no waiting. There is no, maybe this is fine. We have to vote for the person who will do it now. And just about every Democratic candidate has an aggressive, not just a, a climate change policy, but an aggressive one. And that and that's sort of led by Jay Inslee, the, the, the former Washington governor, or maybe it's current Washington governor, I should know this, um, <laughs> who has uh, who's pre pretty much staked his campaign around the, the issue of climate change. Right. Has said that's the only reason he's in the race, yeah. is to get that message out. By the way, he interviewed Purdue gave us with um, MAZ, WMAZ, the TV station. Mm -hmm. uh, Amy, let's go back to uh, Elaine Chow, who uh, mm -hmm. uh, was at the event, who, as Stephen points out, was the keynote speaker. Well, before I get... Stephen, she was not the original choice to be the keynote speaker. It was going to be Rick Perry. It was going to be Rick Perry, right. And at the last minute, they changed it, right? Right. And Jim Galloway speculates in a column that he wrote today that there's a reason they made the change. They wanted Elaine Chow to emphasize something uh, very important to people in Metro Atlanta. Let's listen to just a moment from her uh, remarks yesterday, and then uh, Amy and Stephen, I'll ask you to talk about it. The department fast-tracked approvals and cut red tape to enable Commissioner McMurray, his team, and the board at the Georgia Department of Transportation to do what they know best to do. And as a result, as you've heard Senator Perdue say, the bridge was replaced in only 43 days. And as President Trump loves to hear, ahead of schedule, and below budget. Amy? It's a terribly good situation to pull out. We all remember if some of us, you know, were there or were leaving things. In fact, we were all leaving, uh, I think, the Federal Reserve that day. And, uh, you know, that there it was, was the, last the, there was the, the big, yeah, there day. was the big plume. And all of a sudden the bridge was down and the fire and it needed to be rebuilt. They did, in fact, do it incredibly quickly, and it's been well. And so it does play in very nicely of this idea that there is this sort of symbiotic relationship, that that's a reason to also continue having um, a delegation 
right? If President Trump wins re-election, that you also want to have Republican members of the Senate that can aid on that. And that's sort of where um, that tie is. And it makes an argument sort of more broadly, I think, leading in for even sort of the next budget cycle and trying and determining, you know, for Kemp about this argument of cutting regulations and how that uh, spurs business in Georgia. Stephen? So, yeah, so the I-85 bridge collapsed. I was there the day after it, crawling through the rubble, doing the story. It looked like it was something at that time, if you would have told me that 43 days from now it was going to be rebuilt and everything was back to normal, I wouldn't have believed you, just seeing the sheer destruction of what happened there. And so, you know, Bill, you mentioned Jim Galloway's column. If Rick Perry was going to be there, he was going to talk about the virtues of Plant Vogel, which is something that is over budget and behind (laughs) schedule. So now you have a complete 180 to this example of infrastructure and streamlining regulations that shows how, you know, the state and federal government can work together to get something done under budget and ahead of schedule. And so it was a really shrewd move. Another thing Jim pointed out is that Elaine Chao, who was also the labor secretary for eight years, is the first Asian-American woman nominated to a cabinet position. And uh, Jim speculated that, you know, I-85 leads to Gwinnett County, which has a huge immigrant population and maybe an area that the Republican Party in Georgia and nationally maybe needs to do a little bit better with. Jeremiah, jump in here. Yeah, so I think it's kind of ridiculous that this is sort of the thing they're staking their claim on in this massive event. They're taking a lot of credit for putting a rubber stamp on what would have happened anyway. Maybe they expired it for five days, a week. I don't know how quickly they did it. But if this is what they think people are going to think of when they're going to vote, especially, for example, the immigrant communities in Gwinnett, when it's going to be the I-85 bridge or the massive raid uh, that happened about a week ago by ICE that separated 700 adults from their children, separated children from their families, put people in these horrible conditions. I don't see how that's a compelling argument when you're weighing it against all of the hate and violence. Oh, Greg Bluestein, <laughs> I want to give you a, you know, you weigh in on this. I, I get what Jeremiah is saying. That's certainly an argument that Democrats are going to want to make on this, but getting people to work in a reasonable fashion, not having them backed up, taking detour routes to get to Atlanta. We learned a long time ago that that traffic matters to people of Metro Atlanta particularly. So I do think it was a smart move on their part. Yeah, and, and also listen for Republicans over the next year and a half to highlight, and, and the secretary did this a bit too, but to highlight rural infrastructure as well. Um, because there'll be there'll be press releases and announcements and campaign stops at interchanges in farther flung areas around Georgia, and you better believe that um, that either President Trump or Vice President Pence will be down at the Savannah port at some point before yeah. next November yeah. to highlight some new investment in the port. Okay, um, Stephen. Before we uh, have to take a break, uh, did the Republican congressman who spoke at the event? Did we hear much talk about the socialist agenda of the Democrats? Did they use some of the talking points that have been emerging in the in the months uh, uh, leading up to uh, the event yesterday? Well, you know, this was the Georgia Chamber event. It's a very pro-business group, which includes Democrats and Republicans in the state. And so, what you did hear from Senator Perdue, who has been quick to use the socialism. Uh, uh, term in his campaign and things. You didn't really hear that sort of divisive reg- rhetoric. You actually had Senator Perdue uh, shout out some of his Democratic colleagues for work that they've done to help people in the state. Uh, yes, yeah, suddenly David Scott, the Democrat uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who's been in office now from well over, mm-hmm. what, is he 20 years at this point, uh, Greg? Uh, he, he's his new best Democratic he friend. He called him his um, an American hero yeah. and one of mm-hmm. the good guys. Yeah, and so what you know, so maybe what you see is you know David Perdue doing videos about socialism, things like that. But for some of the more moderate wings of both the Democratic and the Republican Party, you see that tamped down a little bit to talk about infrastructure and the Savannah port deepening and other issues that are a little more uh, tangible for people to grasp than the specter of socialism. Yeah, you know, Amy, uh, it's not bad. It's it's pretty smart of Purdue, who is now on a number of occasions singled out Democrat David Scott as someone mm-hmm. he loves working with. Uh, if you're trying to win re-election in Georgia, if you uh, assume that the African-American vote is what's bringing the gap down between Democrats and Republicans, as it did in uh, 2018 races, uh, it, it doesn't hurt to be singing the praises of an African-American member of Congress. 
I think it's two things. I think, number one, it's that there is very much a disconnect between campaign rhetoric and what happens on sort of a day-to-day basis, especially when you're discussing policy, right? It really doesn't matter which chamber you're in, but particularly if you're serving in the U.S. Senate, you have to have bipartisan support for things that you're doing or you will get literally nothing done. Really? Really. But the other side of it, I think, is that, as you said, I mean, the Republican Party right now is set to have a single Republican member in the entirety of the U.S. Congress. Yeah. That will be Senator Tim Scott. There are no uh, remaining African-American members of the House. uh, Now that Will Hurd has said he's going to win. And so that's an issue. And it's going to be something that particularly I think is of importance in Atlanta or in in Georgia when where you have a fairly large right African-American community. It it also reminds me a bit of the alliance between Governor Deal and uh, former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed. Oh, good point. They often highlighted this. Uh, to the point where uh, Kasim Reed didn't even in, uh, didn't formally endorse Jason Carter, the Democrat, mm-hmm. running against uh, Governor. All right, back let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way and come back with a lot more that we have to talk about on Political Rewind. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. If one Republican senator had his way, apps like Facebook and YouTube would look pretty different. No more infinite scrolling or videos that play automatically. He says they are addictive. The business model is increasingly exploitative in nature. I mean, I think that, look, these are companies that have tried to evade accountability. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, an unorthodox proposal to regulate social media this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven today on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Hi, I'm Ross Terrell, GPB's reporter here in Atlanta, but I cover more than the state's largest city. I tell stories about the problems farmers in the southern part of Georgia are facing, and I report on transportation issues affecting the 13 metro Atlanta counties. We believe express lanes is our way to manage the amount of traffic or demand to give those users the reliable trip times that they're looking for. Stick with us to hear these stories and more. GPB News, stand with the facts. We're back on Political Rewind. Um, Greg, I know you've been out of the state, but I think you can help set up uh, the next uh, subject that I want to talk about today. And that is Governor Deal last week, uh, Governor Deal, Governor (laughs) Kemp, last week, um, I think it's fair to say sort of out of nowhere, not quite. Greg's going, eh, not. He last week said he wants 4% cuts from all state agencies to go into effect this year, and then 6% cuts in the next fiscal year, which, of course, starts in July of 2020. Um, and, and this at a time when we, we've just learned tax revenues are up a bit in the state. Um, tell me, first of all, what's this about? Is this a political move on his part? Is it's this- about priorities. Remember, this is a governor who who pledged to to, to slash the budget and to and to rein in spending overall. Um, and he hasn't he hasn't quite met, met that campaign pledge um, yet. But this is this is about being able to prioritize what his other top one of his other top goals is, which is the the remaining two thousand dollars of the five thousand right. dollars promised right. to teacher pay raise, and that costs a lot of money. Yeah. And so to be able to get that two thousand dollar pay raise in the next year or two budget before his twenty twenty two reelection campaign, he's got to make other cuts because the economy is still growing, but it's it's its pace is starting to slow. Yeah. Um- um, uh, Faust reminds me that I uh, should make the disclaimer that, you know, GPB is, in fact, a state agency. Now, we don't the funding for like shows like this does not come from the state budget, I, I can say very clearly. But we do get um, some of our operating money from the state of Georgia. So we're affected by this budget cut as well. Um, Amy, what's interesting about it is that at the same time, and Greg makes the point that Kemp made a big promise to mm-hmm. teachers. He's already started to yep. put some of it in place. He's already given them raises in the current budget, but he wants to do more. 
Um, but at the same time, the state is going to go ahead, the legislature is going to go ahead with uh, tax cuts, another income tax drop in the top uh, rate that people will mm-hmm. pay. Is there an inconsistency there? Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, tax, obviously taxes are a large part of how, right, the budget is, in fact, funded. And so you're going to have to. So it's not only cutting that percent, but also trying to make up that windfall. Um, and I do think what's interesting, right, is that the, the Center for uh, Budget and Tax uh, Policy is suggesting that, you know, maybe there's different ways to go about what you want to do, particularly if you pay attention to who might benefit from the tax cuts that they're looking at as opposed to some other options. Um, the other thing that I was struck by um, is that Speaker Rolston is already sort of saying, let's be clear about what we've got here, right? He's got really this kind of great quote about how, quote, Georgia still pay less per capita to operate state government than they did before the recession hit in 2007. And then it already is a really pretty lean budget. There's been a lot of cuts and part of what's happened. um, Now, of course, now I'm speaking, you know, somewhat as, you know, from the perspective of the fact that I also work for, right, Right. obviously, one of the state universities is that in many ways, we had to make a lot of cuts after the recession to be able to deal with the issues there. And that money, we haven't really gone back up even to sort of where we are. And the issue is that sometimes cutting, you hit a point where there really isn't a ton to be able to cut, particularly if what you want to do is um, increase services, for example, or ensure that you are uh, providing services to the same number of people. All right. Um, Jeremiah? I kind of want to talk about the consequences of that lean budget. The fact that we're thinking of cutting it to me is insane. I'm going to consult my notes because I want to make sure I get this right. Our lean budget means we have the 45th lowest or the 45th worst spending per patient for Medicaid in the country. We have the 37th in per student spending for public schools. We have the 10th highest poverty rate. We have the fifth highest uninsured rate. And we have the fourth highest incarceration rate. We are falling behind on a lot of metrics because we aren't properly investing in the people in the state. And the fact that we're now thinking we want to make these indiscriminate cuts across the board without thinking of who's going to be impacted. I expected, I think Governor Kemp's a prudent man. I don't always agree with him. But I thought he'd come to this with a scalpel, not a chainsaw. I think if you cut, like, public health, you cut all these other agencies, just 4 to 6%, a lot of people are really going to suffer as a result, especially if you do it alongside cutting $550 million in taxes to the budget. Well, and actually, just a quick note on that, that I remember, so this is back quite a long time ago, uh, in the midst of the recession, but I remember that the universities got asked, okay, if you had a cut just off the top line of your budget, we want all of you to show us what it would look like if you cut, I think it was 5% at the time. And one of the things that's also really interesting is that some of these things, we can cut them, but they also bring in their own revenue. So I remember one of the issues that sort of showed up on the line for Georgia State was cutting the Georgia State daycare, which, sure, if you look on the budget side of it, right, you've got the salaries for uh, the people that work in the daycare and all of that. But when you actually look at the revenue side, it is either neutral or it makes money. And so I think there's also the fact that what we don't always pay attention to is that some of these government services also themselves do bring in money and do bring in funds such that it becomes difficult to do that kind of across the board cut without kind of recognizing what we're actually talking about. And that's what we heard a lot of during the recession cuts uh, about a decade ago, Mm -hmm. that a lot of the fat had been cut, but now they're cutting the bone. Now they're cutting the essential services. And Speaker Rawls, Austin said this said as much. I mean, he said that, look, he wants people to know these cuts will be painful. They will mm-hmm. affect the services that Georgians rely on. And I think and it's, it's actually kind of remarkable that they're holding these hearings. These are very rare, to say the least, mm-hmm. holding these hearings this year rather than waiting until the legislative session next year uh, yeah. to start hashing out this debate. Well, it, it's here's the other uh, aspect of this, though, that I think is important to point out. Uh, there, most people, most economists do think that we're going to st- the economy will start slowing down later this year and certainly well into 2020. If, in fact, they're anticipating that slowdown and want to get ahead of it, uh, that's a fairly good argument, Greg, for going ahead and making some cuts. Now, we, we can argue about how you make those sure. cuts, yeah, no. but this might be a prudent 
uh, approach to a, an economic slowdown. And there's also a second uh, effort, too. He's also forming a special um, economic development type committee that will look at regulatory changes and could also look at new ways to raise revenue like casinos. And that debate has been going on for, mm-hmm. for decades here. Um, yeah. But expect that to surface again, too. Uh, things that can entice more, more spending and more revenue in Georgia. But, sorry. Go ahead. Also, if we're talking about, you know, preparing for an economic slowdown, the last thing we should be doing is cutting taxes, like, at the very top of the income spectrum. Like I said, it'd be about $550 million out of the budget if we cut taxes like they want to do next year. And the average Georgia family would save about $42 a year. Who is that really designed to help? All right. Um, we're going to watch how this goes forward. When Do we know when? I mean, Ralston, as you said, did point, did announce he wants his agency heads in front of him in budget hearings this year. That usually takes place the second week mm-hmm. of, the, mm-hmm. of the session uh, in January. Do we know exactly when he's going to do this at I this point? I don't think we have specific timing for the hearings yet, but, but you're right. They'll be by the end of the year, and... Um, and, and it sent a lot of state agencies scrambling to go put up, you know, what could be doomsday-type numbers. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we'll have more on Political Rewind. I'm Taylor Gann, GPB's Morning Edition producer. I've had the chance to cover the full spectrum of sports in Georgia, including women's basketball, the NCAA National Championship, and Atlanta United who won the city's first pro championship since 1995. All different people all come together in these games, and it really just represents all of Atlanta. And I think it means a lot to the entire city to have something like this. We bring you the latest on sports right here on GPB. On the next Fresh Air, Janet Mock, a writer, director, and producer of the TV series Pose, about the underground gay and trans ball culture of the late 80s and early 90s when the AIDS epidemic was decimating the community. With Pose, Mock made history as the first trans woman of color to write and direct an episode of TV. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Jeremiah Olney is with us. He's an associate at Paramount Consulting. Yes, you do know that name because Theron Johnson is the founder of Paramount Consultant and a frequent uh, an, uh, panelist on this show. Jeremiah, has been, you've been working with him since the formation of the company, haven't you? Yeah, and about a year before that, too. Oh, yeah, that long, <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, give us a little bit, because you've just started recently coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Who are you, Jeremiah? I ask myself that all the time. Uh, (laughs) I'm a principal at Paramount Consulting Group. I uh, graduated college. I immediately went to work somewhat incidentally for the Georgia Senate Democratic Caucus. Uh, Did some odd jobs, a little bit of campaigning, a little bit of communications. No, I've just been trying to sort of find my niche this whole time. Not sure I found it yet, but it's been an incredible journey. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Okay, where are you from? From Decatur, Georgia. All right. Just like to know things like that about people. Um, Amy Steigerwald is uh, with us, as uh, she often is. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. And Greg Blustein. By the way, uh, Tom Faust reminds me to tell you, you know, Julianne Thompson, we always try to have a balance of Democrats and Republicans (laughs) on this show. Julianne Thompson was scheduled to be here today uh, so that she could uh, square off against Olney (laughs) over there. I was really looking forward to Uh, it. I'm I'm sorry to say that Julianne... uh, got sick. She oh, no. sent oh, me a okay. note very early this morning feeling terribly apologetic, saying, I'm just too sick to do the show. I mm. hope you'll let me come back. And of course, we will let her come back. I sick hope she feels sick. better soon. Yeah. I do, yeah. too. Yeah. I, do I too. saw Julianne and her husband, Jason, up in Rome over the weekend for a big Republican rally. Oh, yeah, that's right. You are, you're all over the <laughs> state. It's... Uh, it's 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 ramping up all over again. Uh, all right, let's uh, <laughs> let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about uh, gun safety, uh, which of course has been the big issue ever since the weekend of El Paso and Dayton. There was a uh, essentially a vigil, a prayer vigil at the state capitol at noon today. It's, well, it was at St. Luke's uh, Church at the capitol, and um, one of the speakers to no one's surprise was uh, Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Remember that she. Uh, lost a son to a gun incident, and uh, it was largely what motivated her to get into the congressional race in the first place. Uh, She spoke to the group today. Let's just listen to a little of what she had to say. I am so grateful that each and every one of you here today stand in faith. 
Stand in faith, understanding the undeniable responsibility that we have as people of faith to stand up and to cry out against the injustice, the immorality and unethical gun violence that we are plagued with in our communities every single day. Uh, Amy, so we know that uh, that gun violence is at the top of the agenda for a lot of people, but we're still uncertain where this is all going to head in terms of any kind of action on changing the laws. The things that seem to be most on the table currently are either a red flag law, which a lot of times relates to if somebody has had a prior conviction, for example, for domestic violence or some other um, violent act. Um, Unfortunately, for those who don't know, there is a huge connection, uh, particularly when it comes to mass shootings between uh, domestic violence and a lot of the other things that we've seen. That appears to be one of the motivating factors, actually, for the um, Dayton attack was a lot of misogyny and got to learn about a new subculture of music that I really didn't need to know existed called porno grind. Yeah. Mm. And so I think that that um, comes into it. The other one is extending background checks. Um, I think the problem is is that we saw after Parkland there was a big White House forum. It seemed as though there was going to be a push even coming from the White House for background checks and other types of legislation. And then there was not. And what complicates it now even more is that everyone's on August recess. Mm -hmm. And so nobody's being called back. That means that nothing is going to happen. And the question is, when they do get back in a couple weeks, what's going to be at the top of the uh, priority list at that time? And what also complicates it is a no compromise attitude among conservative uh, Second Amendment groups. Mm -hmm. Um, They're already pressuring Senator Perdue not Mm -hmm. to even, you know, uh, flirt with the idea of of supporting a red flag laws. And some of them are saying Mm -hmm. that they'll withhold their support from him in next year's election if he doesn't. And you're kind of seeing that, um, uh, you know, have an effect. He was very noncommittal. Noncommittal is an understatement, very skeptical even. Of, of red flag laws at appearances last week here in Georgia uh, where he said he has concerns about due process. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah, it's, uh, it's, it, it appears that Democrats and Republicans in most of the uh, uh, surveys, most mm-hmm. of the polling, including AJC polling, which was done at the beginning of this year, support some form of gun safety law. The background check seems to be the most uh, popular uh, thing. The president says he supports them now. But, the president uh, says a lot of things. Well, yes, and we'll watch how that unfolds. But it, it, it's interesting to me, and I've said this on the show before, that this issue is, is propelled to the forefront now. Lucy McBath, of course, is right there responding to it. But it, in the 2018 cycle, it wasn't guns that she held up as her primary issue. It was health care. Mm-hmm. And have things changed so the guns may come to the forefront this time around? Honestly, I, I'm a bit pessimistic in this regard. I don't think that they have all that much. I mean, if, when we saw 22 children die in elementary school and then nothing happened, I don't know what more could possibly happen to convince people that they need to change their minds. I think with the Republicans who are so scared of the backlash from these groups, it's not because there's not support for it in the general election. It's because they would lose a lot of primary support, and that's what they're afraid of doing. Yeah. They're putting their electoral success over what is the right thing to do. It would almost invite a, a conservative primary challenger. Um, mm-hmm. Jeremiah is right, and and that does um, look in the in the Georgia governor's race. You saw that you saw mm-hmm. every single candidate running for governor. All five of them try to outflank each other uh, in, in terms of their support for for gun bills, and you saw an army ranger. Uh, being depicted as a Benedict Arnold because he re- briefly said he supported raising uh, the minimum age to buy certain guns to, from 18 to 21. So it's a very thorny debate for conservatives, for, for Republicans, especially in, in red-leading states like Georgia. All right. Um, it's going to be an issue that we'll be talking about on Political Rewind clearly for uh, months to come, all the way through, I would imagine, the election season. Uh, l- the farmers of Georgia... You, you're, one of your colleagues uh, filed a piece for the AJC on the fact, Greg, that farmers here are more and more frustrated with the trade war, especially with China. Uh, the president just last night, I think it was, or sometime yesterday, announced that he was going to delay the latest round of tariffs that he intended to impose on Chinese goods 
the response by the Chinese was, we're cutting off all uh, purchases of American farm goods. We don't know, now that the president has said, we'll hold off for the time being, we don't know whether or not uh, the Chinese will now back away from their commitment to not buying American farm goods. But, Amy, farmers all over the country, especially soybean farmers uh, in the Midwest who sell huge quantities, most of their crop to the Chinese. Mm-hmm. But here in Georgia, where uh, pecan sales go to the Chinese, cotton, and, uh, cotton has yep. been big. The Chinese are now buying more of their cotton from Brazil, it appears. This is, devast- this is devastating news following the Hurricane Michael, which did terrible damage already. It's of great concern. I mean, farmers, as we've talked about a lot, right, it's not only trying to figure out, right, when planting season is going to be and how much of something you're going to plant. A lot of times the contracts for selling it are also done that far out because that's in part how you're able to get the funds to be able to plant the seeds to grow the plants uh, to do all of this. And the numbers are pretty shocking. Um, Reuters had a report that was out saying that... um, in soybeans were we bought uh, China bought 19.5 billion dollars of soybeans from us in 2017 and that went down that was cut almost in half to 9.1 9. in 2018 and now of course they're saying that would be zero i mean that's that's a lot of money and yet lots of money and so it's unclear what's going to happen and certainly right part of this also is that nobody knows what's going on from day to day okay but but at the yes but at the same time uh jeremiah i'm sure much to this may have democrats the farmers of south georgia uh, in anecdotal conversations with reporters about president trump are sticking with him. They they have told reporters from any number of publications, yes, this is hurting us, but we know in the long run we're going to uh, win because of his policies. Uh, we'll see when polling starts happening in that part of the state, but right now perhaps he is he's getting what he's he's getting the support he wants from them oh yeah absolutely but the only reason i think he's maintained that support is because he's functionally paying them to keep it he's i think allocated something like 28 yes. billion dollars yeah. to mm-hmm. mitigate the effects yeah. of the trade war yeah. but that's only going to go so far <laughs> these people's livelihoods are being threatened long term and i don't know if he can sustain that kind of momentum over the course of the next year and a half i don't think he can um there's really no reason to stand behind him on this. He's going back and forth constantly. We don't really know what his ultimate objective is. He has no plan. I think this is going to blow up in his face. And if we have the kind of volatility in the stock market like we've seen just this morning, it's only going to keep getting worse. And these are not parts of the state where Trump won a narrow victory um, yeah. in, in 16. These are these are, these are are some counties where he won 80, 90 percent of the vote exactly. um, that, that have no local Democratic elected officials and, and have been solidly mm-hmm. Republican now for, for, for decades, some of them. Um, so it's uh, in on Democrats to, to try to give them a, a reason to, to, to switch to, to switch their allegiance and, and Democrats have really struggled um, historically in these areas ever you know, they used to dominate these rural these rural mm-hmm. areas and and since really the the, the early 2000s um, there is a steady evaporation of democratic support there meanwhile agriculture secretary <coughs> Sonny Purdue, uh, appeared in front of a group of farmers. I, I can't find the article right now on my computer, Greg, and you may not be able to either. But he was it, with a group of farmers somewhere, I think, in the Midwest. I think it was I in re- Minnesota. It was in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I think so. And, and he was being assailed about, about all this by these farmers and chose to make a joke which no one thought, apparently, in this group. It's been reported. It was very funny. Do you happen to have that? I have it. I ha- he said, I had a farmer tell me this in Pennsylvania. What do you call two farmers in a basement? A wine cellar. Oh, a wine. W-H-I-N-E. Cellar. Um, and this comes amid the whole trade the tariffs and trade war talk. And yeah. and so he he got a mix of, of, of some laughs and boos there. And that was widely reported um, how uh, how poorly that, that quarter came off. I would certainly like to extend my thanks for that gift to Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. We'll see how that plays out. And, you know, as always, we're... You know, we're an 18-station network, so there are an awful lot of you out there who are listening to us from parts of the state which depend on agriculture, and it's our goal to keep you informed and to keep you in our thoughts about how we talk about politics in this state as we move forward. Um, Finally, today, uh, Bluestein, 
we got five presidential candidates coming to Georgia, to Atlanta, on Friday for a big, it's a conference uh, being run by uh, African-American faith leaders, right, pastors, Mm -hmm. but there's going to be some 5,000 young African-American youth, I guess. Yeah, mostly millennials. It's going to be a huge uh, undertaking Friday and Saturday, five different presidential candidates um, who will highlight their policies, not just, this is going to be really interesting, not, not just... Um, you know their their, their platforms in healthcare, but also their rural policies. We were just talking about r- rural Georgia, um, and uh, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg actually intends to highlight his broadband plan, his $80 billion broadband plan that he just unveiled this week at this conference. So- he gave you that story. This is worth mentioning. The, his people called you and said, you can have this exclusively, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what I said when you mentioned that is... It strikes me that that says something about um, the Buttigieg campaign's understanding of the political map and the interests of various people around the country. They get how important rural broadband is right now to Georgia. Now, most campaigns ought to be aware of that sort of thing in a, in a state that's going to be in play next year. But the fact that they turn to you for this, to give you the story means they do get some of the ec- dynamics say, of this state. Yeah, the last year, if you ask both Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams what were, what were one of the top three issues in rural Georgia, mm-hmm. time and again, it was it was the lack of, of, of widespread broadband that mm-hmm. is not just a education and, and access issue, but also a health care issue. Well, and it's also important to remember that, you know, the demographic diversity in Georgia is not just in Atlanta. Yeah. It's also in a lot of the rural areas, right? Sumter County is, I think, uh, 40 or 45 percent black, right? There's a one lot of, the, of also areas. also one of the most competitive territories in all of Georgia. Hmm. Exactly. And so, I mean, that's important to remember. And broadband is a huge deal. I mean, for a lot of these jobs, it's impossible to do them these days without being, I mean, it's impossible to do almost anything these days without being able to get online. Jeremiah, on Saturday, it's Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. On Friday, it's Buttigieg, uh, Julian Castro, and Cory Booker. Mm-hmm. I believe so. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we talked about this before the show, with maybe the exception of Castro, the other four have pretty much qualified to be in that m- perhaps more elite group of 10 <laughs> Maybe 11, 12 mm-hmm. candidates will be in the next round of debates with their ABC. Is that the sponsor of the next round? I'm not whoever, sure that sounds right. Whoever yeah. it is. Um, that, if you're a Democrat, as you are, mm-hmm. seeing the field not narrowed for in perpetuity going forward, but at least to have a more focused debate. I would think is a good thing for your team. I absolutely agree. I'm ecstatic about it personally. I think the last two debates have been fun, but not necessarily very substantive, not very helpful to people looking to what candidate they want to support. Ideally, what will happen here is my impression is that if they have 10 candidates, they want to keep it to one debate. I would really be unhappy if they did that. I would love to see another two-night debate, have five candidates on each stage, because it's all about the viral moments anyway. It's going to be about who says the most eloquent, most intelligent thing, we, it, we don't need to worry about viewership figures over those two days. It's going to be endlessly reported on and commented on and tweeted about. So I'd like to see them have the opportunity to get more than 30 seconds of talking points and then 15 seconds of rebuttal. I'll yeah. take the other side of that. I'd love to see them all on one stage. <laughs> Rather than dividing some of the top candidates who you have to wait for, you know, to see uh, Biden on a separate stage as, let's say, Bernie Sanders. I'd love to just see them all together on one stage finally. Tiebreak it. Amy. I guess I would like to see all of them on one stage, but as much as this might pain people, a longer debate a five because hour debate. I think we need the thing. As, oh, as God. you know, I know. Oh, not, not that we really want five hours, but maybe even single topics. I mean, as Bill has said, if you can watch soccer for forty-five minutes straight, you can watch a debate with people talking substantively. <laughs> all right, uh, Amy Steigerwald, you got the last word on today's <laughs> political rewind. We're uh, we're done for today. We're back again at two o'clock on Friday with another show. One of the interesting uh, topics we'll discuss is that both Ted Terry and Teresa Tomlinson, Democratic candidates for U.S. Senate, are now supporting a commission to look at whether there should be reparations for slavery. Good move, bad move. We'll talk about it on Political Rewind Friday at 2. Take care, everybody.